sometimes in the afternoon and what the heck, in the evening too. Good coffee is just that. It's good coffee. One of the perks, pun intended, of my profession is that I often get to taste coffees in the countries from which they originate. I have had Ethiopian coffee in Ethiopia. I've had Brazilian coffee in Brazil. I have had coffee from around the world in many, many of its home countries. But I got to tell you what. There's a coffee that I love coming home to, and I think you will too. Papa's Roast Coffee. You can get some at www.papasroast.com. Dean and Debbie Chris, my friends, they roast this in their own shop. They have It's from a single origin. Every bean is roasted to perfection in small batches. It's shipped to you in eco-friendly bags. You can go online and look right now. www.papasroast.com. Hey, let's get to our conversation. Welcome to Say Yes and Become. I'm your host, Leonard Lee, and we have an amazing, amazing conversation going on today. We have a couple guests here. One of them is a uh, guest that we've had before. Uh, we got to talk about his book, A Sea Between Us, and it was an amazing story of a man who literally built a rowboat and rode it the United States from Cuba. And it was a great story of faith, love, inspiration. And uh, so Billy Ivy is with us today. And he is a, he's a, I'm trying to figure out how to describe him, uh, except to say that God's using him with what he has given him, his gift of words, his gift of insight, his gift of, of being able to form things together in ways that people simply understand and feel invited into. So Billy, I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I love those gifts in you and thanks for using them. He's brought a friend with him, uh, Alton Hardy. Uh, Alton is a, um, well, one of Billy's first descriptions of Alton was he's just a big dude. Uh, so I'm assuming that you're, you're, you're tall, uh, and that, uh, people don't want to wrestle you right off the bat. Um, uh, but, uh, Alton is a man who's, uh, who Billy is literally sitting with him over the last several months and in the months to come to say, how do we capture this God story, uh, for this man of God and how do we tell it and get it out there? And so we're happy to be a part of that capturing, of that telling. Um, eventually what you hear today is going to be a book. Uh, and that book, I will be one of the first people to buy it and read it and promote it all over the place. Um, and we want we want to hear uh, from God through Alton and the story that God is still writing in his life. And so Alton, welcome to the show today. Uh, I am so glad you're here. Good to be here. Thank you for inviting me. You and Absolutely. Billy. Yeah. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to turn it over to you guys. If I missed anything in the introduction, tell us really quick uh, and and what you want people to know. And then I've got some questions for you all lined up uh, that uh, I don't even tell you that God gave me the questions because my brain might have done it. But we'll find out. <laughs> so uh, well, let, let me start just very quickly. Uh, this uh, Thank you for the introduction, Leonard, and it is a pleasure being here with you uh and my brother alton um i uh i was so grateful to be on your podcast about a year ago right before uh, a sea between us came out and we had such a good conversation about that since that time a sea between us did come out it was uh not wildly but mildly successful as far as as far as the marketplace goes and um Both this is just a little back 
Well, good. Yeah, twelve of all twelve of them. We're up to twelve <laughs> yeah. now. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, I appreciate every single one of them. The uh, but over the past year, I've been trying to trying to determine what am I supposed to do next, and how is God going to use. Uh, the, I fell in love with the writing process. I fell in love with the storytelling process. I was super proud uh, in, in, an, in an unproud way, very proud of the story that we were able to put together for Yoseli and his family. Um, it was around uh, Thanksgiving where a friend of mine, Greg Mixon, and I would be remiss not to mention his name. Greg is a lawyer here in Birmingham, a dear friend of both of ours, uh, who came to me and said, man, I love your book. I, I, I read your book. It was fantastic. It was great. I've got a question for you. What's next? And I had been struggling with and wrestling with that question for uh, several months, trying to figure out what was next. And uh, I said, well, I want to write. I want to keep writing. And he said, well, God's been telling me for about five years that I need to tell Alton Hardy's story. Uh, he hasn't been telling me to write it, but I read your book and he told me that you're supposed to. <laughs> and you know, it gives me chills even sitting here next to Alton now uh, because I don't, I didn't know Alton. I knew of Alton. Uh, Greg, Greg then went into a little bit of the story of Alton's story with me, and I was sold right there then and there at lunch. And that began a process of us starting small stories, uh, which is a a a for lack of a better a better explanation, it's a creative studio that studio that is. It, we are going to be uh, focused on and committed to telling true stories of a redemption and hope through books and film. And it's just, it's just been a powerful last six or seven months yeah. uh, for me personally, but for us as a, in relationship with Alton and, and getting to know him better. Uh, but ever since we started this process of learning Alton's story and putting Alton's story on paper, uh, I have been, uh, just richly blessed, uh, mm. not only by his story, but, uh, but with it. And, um, and I'm super, super excited to introduce him to you and to, and to your listeners today, because it is a powerful story. It is a God story, and it is going to be something that I believe is going to uh, change the world uh, uh, through, his, through his small, but very, very significant story. Um, and so that, that's the only intro that I, I would add to the intro you gave earlier. And now I'll, I'll sort of leave it to Alton and, and maybe, maybe your prompting question of, of how do we get into this. But I'm just really, really excited that this is, this is an opportunity for us to, to really dig into this very special thing. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Um, yeah. You are following a long tradition of uh, faith people who are telling stories, just so you know. The old radio times, uh, you know, they used to, hey, we're going to tell you a 20-minute story, 30-minute story. Uh, that's a part of Christian heritage. And so it's good to see that in the 21st century, God is still equipping and calling storytellers. Uh, so thank you for saying yes to God in that, Billy. I appreciate mm -hmm. that more than uh, words can say. Alton, welcome. Tell us about you. And then I'll ask you about 4,227 questions. Yeah. <clears throat> One is first, uh, excuse my voice. I've been fighting uh, weather or something here lately. Um, I'm a husband, a father, a grandfather, been married to my wife, um, August will be um, almost 28 years, Sandra Hardy, um, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for her, and so God allowed for her to come into my life at a most opportunity, opportunistic time, and hasn't been, it's been good ever since. Have five children between us, um, Albert, he's the oldest, Alicia, Ahmad, Rashad, Hardy. That's the story behind that. 
um, Jalen Hardy, and then the youngest is Jeremiah Hardy, who lives here in Birmingham mm. with us, well, in Birmingham. And so we've um, been here in Birmingham now almost 11 years, come this August, and yeah, and there's a story that's unfolding. I'm still trying to figure out where it's all headed. And so, but my, actually, I'm, I'm back here in Birmingham, but my story starts in Sardis, um, outside of Selma, a sharecropping sharecropper um, community. Um, Billy and I went there, he saw it. I got the chance to show him uh, the different places where I used to live. And most of those houses were shotgun houses. They're no longer there. And didn't think that much about it when I was living there, but here it is. God is now taking that very um, humble, very impoverished beginning of my life. And now it's something that he's bringing a lot of attention to. So being here in the great state of Alabama. And so that's where my life starts, man. Um, mm -hmm. I like to go down to Sardis quite a bit just to kind of um, reflect um, when I have moments like a book being written about your life, I go there often just to kind of recalibrate, to remind myself um, it's not my story as much as it is God's story in me, yeah. revealing himself to the people around me. So it keeps me, um, it keeps me humble. It just reminds me that, um, but also encourages me as I go and speak a lot to young people where I'm at now that I'm able to connect and, um, and tell them it doesn't matter where you start, doesn't matter who your parents were or were not, and where you were born, your zip code, whether you had a father or a father was absent or whatever the case was, God can still um, take your life and make something out of it. So that's a that's a real story for me. And so that's pretty much um, my story. Of course, I left Selma when I was about 11 years old, I migrated to Louisville, Kentucky, where I, have, I call that my pit stop and then went to Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I spent, um, I call that my wilderness years, where I spent 35 years in snow and ice, had never <laughs> really seen that, and started in, in Louisville, and then get to Grand Rapids, with, and then there's snow up to my height, and it's like, what is this? And uh, But God used all of that time and prepared me. I tell people now, I'm back in Birmingham, Grand Rapids prepared me for, what I believe to be this last leg of a journey for my life. And so, and so now here I am in Birmingham. Um, God is telling this um, gospel story of, of gospel reconciliation, um, um, gospel um, redemption, um, healing. He allowed me to have these experiences along the way. And I had no idea what God was doing. And now here I am in Birmingham, and God is doing this, what we call um, the manifold wisdom of God, which is a verse from Ephesians 3.10 that I believe the Lord assigned to me in Grand Rapids yeah. because I became so, man, disillusioned with all the race, woke, social justice back then. It seems like it was just like it was um, yesterday that I was in that space. And I just basically said, I can't do this no more. I'm I'm done with talking about race. I just can't. I can't heal people. They don't like each other. So I'm I'm bound out. <laughs> Find somebody else to talk about it. Blah blah blah. I went into my um my bag about just this can't. This is no hope for this race conversation. And powwow, 
Um, that's where reading Ephesians 3, I had to preach a sermon at the church where I was. In the church where I was, I was a part of a preaching team. And usually the pastor would assign the text to us, but he had gotten used to my style of preaching where he would say, well, you just go and pray and whatever the Lord gives you and you come back and share that. <laughs> so I was given one of those moments and I did, I go and I, and I said, well, I know I'm not teaching on race no more. I'm done with that one. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to outsmart the all wise sovereign God. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's a losing battle. It doesn't and, work very well, does it? And so I had preached Ephesians 2 multiple times about the wall of partition, hostility, and all of that. And so I knew that text um, in and out. But I said, okay, I'm going to just, all right, Lord, what do you want me to preach on? And still my, my process of preparing for a sermon, I start with asking like David did, inquiring of God. I, I just don't want to assume anything. And so I still my process, even if I'm preaching through the book of the Bible, I still ask first, what does it say versus running into a commentary or something like right. that. I want to at least be um, um, somewhat asking the spirit of God to show me about this text. So I said, okay, Lord, I don't know what to preach on. I'm, I don't want to do race. Um, I'm, I'm, and I'm somewhat really beaten down. I'm, I'm weary. I'm, I'm not optimistic anymore. I used to be, but I'm not at this point. I'm just, I've kind of run my um, course on the race conversation in the church where I was. That's all we talked about nonstop. It was like, I mean, it was just race, 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 race. And it was all the anti-racism stuff that was going on. So I was just raced out. I, was, I told Billy I was race fatigue. Mm -hmm. And um, I was just, I didn't have no more answers of how to fix inner cities. Um, the terminology of reparation wasn't out then, but it was all in the atmosphere. Like, how do we, and white privilege, and it had me all confused. I didn't know whether to love Billy or to hate him all in the same day. <laughs> it was just too much for me. And so... So that so God must he knew that he knew where I was and he knew my background so he knew I had had all of these kind of racial woundedness along the way in my own life being born in Sardis and and so I said okay I'm gonna start reading Ephesians three I'm on my, I'm in my back room I'm on the floor and I'm in Grand Rapids so I gotta preach and so Lord I need to know what you want me to preach on so let me read Ephesians three surely it's not gonna be like Ephesians two all about the Jew and Gentile. <laughs> well, to my amazement, um, I tell this story. I've had a um, really, uh, I don't know how it happened with Martin Luther, the reformer, but I would say it was up on that level for me personally, where God pulled back the scriptures in Ephesians 3 and just kind of helped me see his heart mm -hmm. as it related to the gospel and all people and all ethnicities. And brothers, I just, I wept, I cried. I had not cried hard like that in a long time. And I was weeping, just me and God and nobody else in the back room of my, off of my master bedroom in Grand Rapids on the floor. It's like the Lord was, was answering a heart cry of mine that I think was really within me ever since I was a kid in Sardis that I, I tell the story, you know, you, I was born where I was born. I was born in a place where the dividing lines were there. I didn't have to go yeah. looking for them. They were there. So that was just a part of my world that I had come out of. And now what God was showing me was 
in the gospel of Jesus Christ, he was reconciling Jew and Gentile who had had this long-standing separation, hostility, and division. And I love the whole text, Ephesians 1 through 11, how grace is mentioned five times. Yeah. This was a plan of God to take these two groups of people, and not just the Jew and Gentile, but all people, bloods and crips, blacks and whites, and to reconcile them in the power of the gospel. Amen. And it hit my heart like an atom bomb. Mm. And it was like, I don't care what anybody say anymore. I don't care what any anti-racism person tries to tell me that I can't love my brothers from across the aisle. I, I, I was done in it. I knew it. I said, Jesus is the only answer for this. And they landed on Ephesians 3.10 right now. I was reading it in a TNIV version at the time. Right now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the powers and the rulers in the heavens, in the in the heavenly being, in the heavenly um, realms. And uh, man, I, I I was I cried. It was like God said, "This is my plan, and this text is for you." And He said, "I'm going to do this in your lifetime. I'm going to bring about something um, um, that people say can't be done." And that was a Jew and Gentile. There was no way the Jew and Gentile. Man, these people have been hating each other for years, generations. You mean a Jew and a Gentile in the same space in Jesus Christ? That can't happen. I said, gosh, I'm going to do that with you, and I'm going to take black and white. Now, Birmingham at this time, I've never even been to Birmingham. Heard about it, of course, but it was not on my radar or anything. So, so here I am now in Birmingham, pastoring a church, connecting with people like Billy, and there's this, what I call this gospel Reconciliation, I call the manifold wisdom of God. This Greek word speaks of all the variations of grace and how God takes and makes it into a multicolored yeah. uh, fabric of the coat of the color of Joseph. It talks about that. That's one of the meanings of it. And we're in here in the inner city, Fairfield, black and white, in together in church. And people was like, how is this happening in Birmingham? Birmingham has this, has this you know, it has touched the world. In, in this aspect of being divided, especially among the black and the white. And I would even say the poor and the rich here as well in the classism, but God is really keeping his word. And so that's that's kind of the short end of the story. And so I just fill in the gaps in between. That has taken a lot of time for God to get me where I'm at. So that didn't, for your listeners, that didn't come over time overnight. Um, that's been a slow process. God has been working with me. I tell people, there was a few years, I talked about my son, Ahmad Rashad. There was a period of time in my life where Satan really fought hard for my heart in race mm -hmm. matters. And so when my son, Ahmad, my oldest, I named him that because I was in a different place. That's an, that's an Arabic uh, name. And so where I was, I was in a you know kind of a Malcolm X state of mind at that yeah. time, and so um, obviously, and my son said, "Dad, why are you naming his name? Because people are always think I'm a Muslim or something." <laughs> I said, "Yeah, I was playing around with it." <laughs> you, from now on, you just tell him that one of the greatest wide receivers in the NFL, his name was Ahmad Rashad, <laughs> and I was so impressed with his skill and talent because um, that sells the story better than the devil. 
Um, Alton, that is an amazing uh, start of a journey. Um, I want to ask you a couple questions to see if we can't uh, unpack a little bit of that. Uh, you talk about moving from Selma all the way through to Grand Rapids. Now you're back in Alabama. Um, tell me what a shotgun house is for people who are listening. They're going to go, um, I don't know what that is. What is a shotgun house? Give me a definition. Shotgun house, and for the listeners, I didn't even know what it was until I went north and come back. Uh, a house uh, or should I say not a house, really a shack sitting on top of some bricks. Okay. And basically with a wooden floor. And yes, that's a shotgun house. And you, you can, I, I, Alton was able to show several of these to me when we were in Sardis. Um, uh, and Sardis is, is the crow flies about 10 miles from the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where where Sunday Bloody Sunday, you know, mm -hmm. listeners can do research on that. They probably some of them probably remember stories of it. But but just in this uh, this very desolate part of the world in in central Alabama, if you will, right. uh, these shacks up on bricks. They basically you can see through the front door to the back door, yes. right? Like you right. you can open the front door and you can see all the way through the house to the back door. So it's it's. Uh, and I think the term came from, you know, you could actually, you could shoot a shotgun through the house without hitting anything. <laughs> right? like, yeah. uh, uh, that's how it worked. But, it, but when he says house, uh, uh, think through that, think through that word loosely because it was not a, it was not a house. Yes. It was a shotgun yeah. If you ever watch old movies, maybe a little house on the prairie, but if you just watch some of the old um, movies on slavery, that, Kind of, it was that world. Yeah. Um, Sardis still has a, a feel of that. Um, yeah, real poverty, and it was it was a farming town, but 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 if people that know the history, it was, it was basically um, plantations and just so. Right. My family was one of the few, and because my, my mom and dad are both gone now, no one really know why my mom and dad didn't leave. Didn't leave. Hmm. Most blacks left. They had the, what we call pre forties, nineteen forties. Left the South, going to Chicago, Detroit, Buffalo, some of those major big cities out west, California. But my mom and dad didn't leave for some reason. Most of their family, their cousins, and my dad's brothers and sisters left, but he didn't leave, and we don't know why uh, he didn't move to Detroit or Chicago and take his family. And so. Um, and so, man, we got stuck there still. Uh, I tell the story, you know, before I would go to school, I still had to pick a little cotton in the morning. Right. Um, a little cucumbers and stuff like that, um, sugar cane, um, bale some hay, and then walk to school and then come back and do more in the evening. And so wow. that was, and so my mother and father had 12 of us. So I'm on, I'm the knife to the end. So I, I didn't catch as much of that as most of my oldest brothers and sisters did. Right. And so that was the world we lived in. We think my dad had 12 kids by my mom. He had other kids as well, but he was basically trying to keep the farm going. <laughs> and so, yeah, that yeah. was my upbringing. Okay. My, years. my mom was one of 12 kids as well uh, in Missouri. Wow. And uh, they were moonshiners. They didn't pick cotton. They, uh, they were moonshiners. And then one day my grandma said, we're not raising moonshiners. They either end up with no teeth or in jail. And so they moved to Oregon. And uh, from there, they moved to California where I was born. But uh, 
Yeah. My the, dad was a moonshiner too. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, there's so much to unpack in your story. Um, one of the things that I just want to talk a little bit about or have you explain uh, or give some uh, more clarity is um, uh, you use the word race fatigue, that you were worn out. Um, I, I think that that's a great phrase for much of our culture. Yes. Uh, we, we've been having the conversations and then the conversations get hijacked by people who, who may not care as much about the issue, but what that issue can bring to them. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I'm not, that's not a color issue. That is a people were broken, uh, 6,000 years of human history, 5,700 years of slavery history. Uh, it's yes. not a black and white people. It is a broken people issue, but because we live here, we have to understand it in light of our own culture and context. Um, help me understand uh, um, what that meant for you as a person of faith uh, to say, yeah. man, I got race fatigue. What does that mean? Because that tells me hope was uh, hope was that the, the flame of hope was flickering dim, if that's accurate. Yes. Uh, that's a great question, um, uh, guys. Excuse me if I leap aside. I think um, for me, it. Um, I always asked the question when I was in faith. Um, I study John seventeen a lot, um, where Jesus is telling the story for the listeners that will be called the high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross, and. What race and the conversations about all the of human history of, of, of evil done to each other, it made that it made me question whether Jesus was who he says he was. Mm. When he was praying, um, Father, make them one, even as we are one. And I said, Jesus, I don't know. I can't, you must not understand the Adolf Hitler in the, in the Germany or what's even happening in Ukraine with Russia. You, so I was, I'm a real practical. So I asked a lot of questions of Jesus in time of prayer. So like you can't, um, I can't do anything about the African slave trade, Jesus, but and where I go is, is constantly being thrown at me as though Jesus doesn't really make a difference. Mm. Or well, that's Christianity, but that ain't, that's not enough. That's that's not the answer. Christianity is just another smorgasbord of one of the religions you can add on, but they can't really get at this this um, ethnic tensions. And so, if you if you think about that as in the, in the eyes of faith, man. I'm just becoming an atheist and faith doesn't really have an impact. I don't really know what I'm talking about at this point. I can't, I can't even run to Jesus for solace, for comfort, for consolation, because I'm he can't do anything about it. <laughs> he can't right. he can't fix it. And that's what I was being presented time and time and time again. So you can only imagine you just become race fatigue or more 
you lose hope in this message called the gospel. Mm. And I started saying, I didn't go to Jesus and press Jesus. You can't, nobody wants to be one. And I'll go to these anti-resistance meetings. And you know this, and part of what they do is just, is just show you the ugliness of history. Mm. And, and history is ugly. If you just do history, it's ugly. It's loaded down with a lot of wrongs done on all kinds of people. And so, okay, I get it. He was a bad. I mean, <laughs> King was bad. I mean, what do we do with all this? <laughs> Give me some hope. <laughs> And I don't know, and that's why you know it's Satan, because he's not trying to give you hope. He's trying to take hope out of you. Yeah. And that's what was happening to me. And this is where I think the, the manifold comes into place. I was wrestling with this all the time. And people would say, well, you're from Selma, you're from Sardis, Edmonds Pettus Bridge, and people still go there yearly and see that. And, and, and we should remember history and and you're a sharecropper kid, and look what was done to you. And so you need to really use your voice to really speak out on the injustice that was done and, and just how did we take privilege from them? And man, it had me in a, in a just a, I was, I was like a guy in the middle of the ocean. I read the book of the sea between. I was, I was, I was that guy out in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> and I was drowning. <laughs> I was drowning for something that could pull me out of where I was headed, mm. which was fatalism or loss of hope in what I once believed at the time was the gospel. Yeah. And so that's why I say it became a gospel fight for me. Yeah. Um, it wasn't um, just let me go and read a few books. No, it was deeper than that for me. I was asking the questions of questions where the Jesus changes relationships between people who at one time hated each other. Right. I was asking that question. I, I went in prayer. I said, Jesus, you can't leave me out. I, I'm dying. And I didn't want to preach anymore. Mm -hmm. I was tired. I was done. And so you, I've gone through phases of my racial um, life. When I met my wife, Sandra, um, and I had some jobs where, you know, I'm a big guy, and this is all being a book. Um, people would call me the N-word, and I was working at FedEx, and I remember this guy, and I mentioned his name, because he may hear this, but he was a foreman guy. And they were always, Elton, you know, um, come to work, and they would be making jokes about 40 ounces, you know, 40 ounces and all being drink by black people in the inner city. And they would be always doing these racial jokes and stuff, and I would have racial um, things on the route. I was, I was in an area that's mostly white, a white suburban area outside of Grand Rapids, and so, but I had become so numb to it, so I was just, just not really respond to it. I didn't, right. didn't bother me. So I would come home and tell my wife, Sandra, and she was like, what? You didn't say anything? I said, nah. You didn't say anything. You just let him talk about 40 ounces and, and chicken and all these watermelon jokes. I said, man, I don't care. And she said, you can't do that. She tell your boss to stop talking to you about that stuff. And you know, I was the only black guy at this company which was a, kind of a theme of my life. I'll be like the only man of color in a lot of my work. 
uh, in, in life. And so, and when I reflect on that, think even then what was happening to me, I just didn't want to talk about it. Right. I was trying to, I didn't have no answers. So all I knew was to put my head down and just suppress and not talk about this. Um, I'm tearing up now. I didn't want to, um, I was just like, God, I can't. So to talk about it was just, it would put me in a state of hopelessness. And I just mm. tell Sanderson, if I go down that road, I'm going to die. I have no hope in that. So I'm just going to ignore it. And so the manifold was just the opposite. It gave me um, it gave me a hope that I, that I finally I could force and I could articulate it in a way that was just, uh, I didn't have to hide no more from it. I didn't have to put my head in the sand and just pretend I had something that I could finally, finally reside and rest in that was true and it didn't move. It didn't vacillate on me. It didn't go away in one generation and then come back in the next. It was something that was profoundly solid. It was it was a Gibraltar. It was a rock. Mm. And and that hit my heart, brothers. Man, that hit my heart like a like a bomb. Because I think all my life I've been carrying that, and it just hit my heart. And so, um, and I never doubted Jesus again. Mm. I never, from that time of the of the metaphor and the reading that, I never ever questioned Jesus in His sovereignty in who He was. And his ability to make people one through the power of the gospel of grace. I never doubted that again. Wow. Up until then, I was up and down because there was so much history being thrown at me that was not gospelly inspired. And so I would believe a lot of these meetings, hopeless and despair. But since that time, I've not vacillated on that. And now I read John 17. I read it with... Um, Say, Jesus, I finally got it. Yeah. What you was talking about. He said, give them the glory that Father that we had so that they would become one. And mm. I would say, Jesus, what is that glory you're talking about? What glory are you mentioning that you give to us, black and white, that would make us one? And I could hear the Lord say, hey, do you know what it is now? It's the gospel. <laughs> yes. Said, give them the glory, the doxa, that, I, that, that will make them one. So when I read John 17, Jesus sitting in that upper room talking to his disciples who became his apostles, he said, give them the glory, the doxa that would make them one. And I've asked Jesus what that was for years. And, and, and in his due time, he gave me manifold wisdom, which is in Ephesians 3. And that's the story. Wow. That's the you story. know, I want to see if we can't dig into Ephesians 3 in a minute. Um what I'm hearing, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, forgive me. Um, uh, what I am hearing you say is that uh, the hope you first found in Jesus, uh, that sound that brought hope was being drowned out by a sound of something else. 
the sound yes. of what do we do? How do we fix this? Here's the long history of bad things people have done. Um, we talk a lot about, or I've talked a lot about in the past, uh, what does hope sound like? You know, I can tell you what despair sounds like. Yes. I can tell you what hatred sounds like. Uh, but we don't, we don't help Jesus followers discern the sound of hope. You know, and so at Christmas time, you feel, you hear uh, change drop into a red bucket in the Salvation Army. And maybe those coins falling into a bucket, that sounds like hope to somebody else because that means there's going to be a meal. Uh, maybe, uh, you know, in the Bible, uh, he's not here. He's risen, just as he said. And those women went from the sound of despair to the sound of hope, uh, yes. you know, and... And so my question for you, uh, on a personal level, what does hope sound like to you? When uh, What do you hear when you hear hope? I hear... Um, this... Um, this is an internal thing for me. Is I hear, um, like I'm sitting here next to Billy, and my friend Greg Nixon, and many more of my white brothers and sisters. And when I'm standing in front of, um, like yesterday, I, I was thinking about this. My wife has a summer program. Um, through our nonprofit called You Hope Success. It was a bunch of inner city kids, most of them fatherless. And we had two murders here last week where two 15-year-old girls were murdered, broad daylight, mm. went to the school. And I was asking the Lord as I was going over there, the 57-year-old black man talking to some six, seven, eighth graders. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know, how do I connect with them? And I was always the first speaker for the program every summer. So when I hear hope, it's, and I've always had this, and I shared this with Jesus a hundred thousand times, is when he's, whatever, I'm a big guy, I've asked God, you know, why do you make me so big? I go in the room, I'm always the biggest guy in the room like six, four, 300 plus pounds. I'm like, man, I'm so, and I, I know it more now than ever. People are like, wow, he's really big. And I, and I think when I, when I hear hope, it's the reality, snippets of it, depending on where I'm at, even when I'm preaching, it's the snippets of raindrops of those who are listening begin to see, perceive, come to faith, understand the reality of this Jesus who loves them with an eternal love, who mm -hmm. created them. And all of the despair of whatever their situations may be, they become background noise. Mm -hmm. And um, that happened yesterday with those kids. Um, I tell people, say, people say, Pastor Hart, how did you learn how to speak? I said, I've never learned how. Just trying to tell people about a real God 
who made us, who's not a distant God. And a lot of people think God is so distant because that was my story. Really in the book, I'm on the search, I'm on the search, I'm looking for something. I'm fatherless, I'm looking for my dad. Who is my dad? Who is my real dad? It wasn't Willie James Hardy, it was this God who sits high and looks low that I had been longing for all of my life. So when I hear the sound of hope, it's when droppings of that begins to marinate a human heart. It begins to become real and tangible to a human being. Mm. And I have the privilege of seeing that when people hear me speak on matters of race and they have a term here in, around Birmingham for me. Well, you got Pastor Hardy, man, you better get ready to cry because that's usually what happens. And I, so the sound of me is just, it's, it's these people seeing that we are truly one. The other history is ugly, but there's a trueness of this gospel that Satan can't break through. Mm. And it's real, it's tangible. And, um, and so... I have the privilege of seeing that a lot. And so that's what hope looks like to me, where people are able to see the truth of a God's word, that Jesus is not an um, imaginary tale. He's not a genie. He's a true God, the son of God, who comes to, to make um, everything the way it should have been if there was ever no sin in the world. And so that's how I hear it. And that's what moves me to speak the way that I do, I'm not trying to articulate a lecture as much as I'm trying to holler or scream a, a reality of hope that is realizing Jesus the Christ, the Son of the Living God. It, uh, Alton, that's that's an amazing description. Um, the sound that I hear as you describe that is that sound of of breath being taken away when truth penetrates a mind and a heart. That, that gasp of, wow, th there's something here that might make me feel small, but it makes me feel important because there's a great God with a great gospel. And so I love, I love that description. So let's fast forward a little bit to uh, Ephesians 3. You know, you've got this manifold wisdom of God and, you know, uh, I love how you describe that. It's multi-sided. It, it it plays a part in moving things to the right place. Uh, a manifold on a car moves air to the right place so that all the pieces run together in the combustion motor. Um, it's like a prism that reflects and refracts light into different places so you can see it differently. Um, he moves from this manifold wisdom of God to this entrenched, mind-blowing love of God. I pray that out of his glorious riches, you might know this love that surpasses knowledge. But he wraps it up with this. We use it as a benediction, um, but I think it's much more than that. Now to him who is able uh, to do exceeding and abundantly above all you can ask or imagine. Um, I think that maybe what God is saying, and you can address this, uh, please do with your wisdom, I think that maybe what God is saying is that is that you can ask and imagine for reconciliation. I'm going to do something better. You do not have the capacity to know what I'm going to do. And that's why we say, and now to him. 
to this God, we what needs to be done is beyond our ability to know because it comes out of this wisdom of God that is not mine. It's his, this multifaceted wisdom of God in the gospel, this this gift he's given to the church. And I'm, I'm listening to your story and I'm hearing, I'm hearing uh, snippets of God uh, having done things that you didn't imagine, yes. but he did them. And so my question for you is, how has that become true for you just in a story from a man, uh, number nine of 12 kids, born in, in Selma, Alabama, in a shotgun house? You're not lining up on the good side of statistics. <laughs> and yet here you are in Alabama leading a church with the word hope in its name. Uh, having traveled from from Selma to Kentucky to uh, Grand Rapids, now all the way back down, full circle. Talk to me about a God who's just done exceeding and abundantly all the things you ask or imagine. Can you tell me about him? Yes. But you can't. Yeah, a... <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a deal breaker. Let's yeah. close in prayer. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, man, where to start? Um, you know, um, it's a, it's just sometimes when I, you know, it's Billy. People are asking me, so how are you feeling about this book? And and one way. Um, meeting with Billy over the last couple of months, I've had some time to just to reflect on how much God has done. Because when you're in the thick of ministry, you can have your sad days and you can just forget. And the Bible always reminds us in the psalmist to remember his his deeds, his good deeds, his, his acts of justice and righteous. And God has done a lot. Um, the fact that I talk, I was in Louisville a few a month ago with some friends that I grew up with there during the book pool and those guys. And they said, man, how did you learn how to talk? Because you couldn't talk. I stuttered. And I said, I, yeah, I, I, I talk so much now. I've totally forgot that. I didn't, was not able to talk. Um, and... But I would tell you guys, probably the one of the outside of Jesus just saving me, salvation, um, and it's the thing that really just so grateful that Jesus has done in me. And I had such a fear of trying growing up that I can't really understand where it came from. Only way I can describe where it may have come in, um, my mother having children, and my dad and her were, were, my dad was very abusive. And so most of my siblings have some kind of mental challenge. And they said I did as well. And because when I was a little kid, I didn't used to use the bathroom on myself. I was afraid to tie my shoes. And if you would have seen me, I just looked like I was just a in a gall of fearfulness and timidity. 
which I had most of my life. Um, and um, I remember my mom spanked me one time and because um, I had used to wrestle with myself. And she said, you got to stop this. And I don't know why I wouldn't go to the restaurant. I don't know why I didn't go. I remember I've been praying. I actually prayed about that when I got older. So what, what was going on with me? And I think maybe with my mom carrying me with my dad and just the arguments and who knows me just feeling it or whatever. I think there was something. But I told Billy, I just I just knew that I wasn't loved and I just knew that I was there was something. There was this this gap. It was, a, I call it a spirit of rejection that I just had. I had a sadness on my face. Mm. And the few pictures that I have of my childhood, when you see them, I have this kind of gloomy sadness about me. Um, and now I don't have it anymore. And people say, you're always smiling. And, um, but I didn't always smile. Yeah. I didn't always, um, have this jovial, optimistic persona about myself. And I think what Jesus has done, um, and this is what I think that, you know, we're talking about that word hope. Um, he has really placed it in my countenance. Mm. I talk, uh, and I had this lady said to me years ago, Sherry Niemeyer, she's Alton, when you speak, there is a hope in your countenance. She says, she says that's why God made you really big because he wanted people to see it, to see the expression of what hope looks like in a sense. And I will say one of the greatest things Jesus has done for me, he took a hopeless kid. I mean, when I say I was hopeless, that will be an understatement. I was afraid to walk. And if anyone's hearing this, I remember as a teenager in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I don't know who car it was, I was asked to get out of the car to, to pump gas. And I remember saying to the person, I was about 16 or 17, I said, I don't know how. Mm -hmm. The person looked at me and I was kind of paralyzed. And when I played basketball, I was in this in the book, the coach used to hit me in my chest. Why are you so afraid? And I say, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know where this fear comes from. It's just been there my whole life. And I don't know why it took me so long to tie my shoes. 15, 16 years old, still trying to figure it out. Still trying to figure out how to tie my shoes. I don't know why. I didn't make me. I don't know why it's there. I don't know. It's just there. And this lack of confidence, and I know it's fatherless was in there, growing up with no dad, and just, just, just not having this whatever it was. I didn't have it, and I knew it. Even to this day, I still haven't learned how to skate. My wife, said, I'm gonna teach you one day. I said, <laughs> one of these days, I'll figure it out. So, but I say this, um, it's not true anymore. And they say public speaking is the most Fearful thing for people to do other than death. So you gotta imagine that what Jesus had to do to get me to stand in front of people 
is the greatest miracle in life outside of salvation. Mm -hmm. And I and that's a story in itself. And I tell the story my first time preaching, and so my stuttering left. I was so afraid. And I still I'm afraid now, but is it is it I've done it enough to to know that and I asked Jesus, my wife said, Why does the fear go away? You've done this a thousand times. I said, Well, one keeps me humble. Two, I know it's not me. And three, he gets the glory. <laughs> and but the first time I remember, I've never seen Jesus. I've never seen his face or anything. But I remember I was preaching on Matthew 14, when Jesus was walking on the water. And I was basically telling this preaching to myself. And it was in Grand Rapids. And, and I remember the Lord said, I'm standing in the back. And just look at me. Mm. And I cried. I was so scared. Lord, keep doing this to me. So I'm standing up there. He said, look at me. Just keep looking. Don't look. Look at them, look at me. And of course, they say it was a great sermon. But yeah, all I'm trying to do is focus on obviously Jesus is not in the back, but I'm thinking he's there and he's beckoning me to come to walk on the water in a sense of doing something that Alton Hardy in a billion years would have never been able to do. Yeah. And Peter walking on the water is not, men don't walk on water. And God, remember to say, if you keep your eyes on me, I will do things unimaginable that you never even imagined in your life. Yeah. And that's how I see my life story right now. That is, uh, that is exactly, um, that's such a great answer, Alton. <clears throat> Here's a guy who uh, I can't imagine. I think you said you moved to Kentucky when you were about nine I can't imagine that those first nine years of your life that you imagined you would uh, uh, be in Kentucky. And then when you went to Kentucky, that you imagined you would be in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And then in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that you imagined that uh, you would be on a basketball team playing sports that you would have. Uh, and, and as your story unfolds, it's one, it's one, um, it's one page after another that's being turned that says, look, and you didn't see this one coming and you didn't see this one coming. Oh, and by the way, you didn't see that preaching one coming. Oh, and by the way, you didn't see, uh, this one coming. And, um, you know, as a point of identification, the very first sermon I ever preached in church was out of Matthew 14. Uh, and Peter walking on the water. And uh, one of the things I said uh, is that is that Peter knew something that day that no one else did, that the only one on the water who could not sink was Jesus. And he <laughs> said, if that's, if that's the only one who can't sink and drown, that's where I'm going, because that's what I've committed to follow him. And if that takes me out on the water, where the life that cannot be asked or imagined is lived. Um, you know, uh, the best stories we have are not uh, 
told from sitting in a boat. You know, that night somebody told a story of walking with Jesus in a storm. And somebody else told a story of bailing water out of a boat. Uh, yeah. And I am grateful to you that those are yeses, by the way. I'm grateful to you and to God for putting in front of you continual yeses uh, or continual opportunities for you to say yes, whether that is um, uh, speaking, preaching, leading, stepping into places where life is never the same again as you do the service of a couple of young girls uh, to bring that word, uh, that word, that person, hope, Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so I've, I'm incredibly grateful. And my hunch is, is that number nine out of 12 of an abusive father who, as you describe, was afraid of his shadow even, couldn't tie his shoes, didn't want to fail, didn't want to make a mistake, is now being invited into those places that your moment by moment existence today is a life that you could not have created or imagined. And that is, that is such great news. Um, let me ask you a question along the way. Um, I stand on the shoulders of a lot of people, meaning that I didn't get here by myself. Uh, I'd love to tell you that I was tough, pull myself up from my bootstraps. And I'm that guy that always make good decisions. But in reality, I'm the opposite of that. Um, you stand on the shoulders of some pretty significant people, I would think. You've mentioned your wife and how she's changed your life. Um, are there any other people that you can go, you know, that person at just the right time, I yes. got to stand on their shoulders. Yes. And that that's why I sit here today, because God used them to move me to beyond what I could ask or imagine. Anybody's, yes. anybody's shoulders you stand on? Yes, uh that church where I was preaching at um, um, guy by the name of Arthur Bailey. Um, he was a um, um, Navy guy, very, um, um, he was older than me, about 10 years older than me. And, and, and that's where I was in his, in his ministry at the time. And he, and this guy was a no nonsense Marine mindset, like he says, be at a meeting. The meeting was at five. He meant four. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, you hear that, Billy? Just kind of <laughs> 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 type I'm A personality. <laughs> and it took me a while to understand why God connected me to him knowing my background, growing up fatherless, and pretty much self-raising myself. And so this is early on in my ministry and my God was processing me. Um, and he was like a really disciplined guy. I mean, and I, I see myself sometimes doing some similar things that he do because I'm around a lot of fatherless young men. And so what I realized about me, even though God loved me, but I had brought a certain personality to the Father God. And the way I heard his voice is almost like um, him and my mom in that sense. So when God says, do something, I get to it. <laughs> I get around to it, God. 
<clears throat> and I see this a lot in my in my own ministry now with, with a lot of followers, kids. Oh, I get to Jesus ain't really, eh, you know. No hurry. Yeah. Not knowing that we're talking about the God of the universe. <laughs> and so what, what this guy did, he says, I said six, not 605. I said I needed it done by this day, not two days later or whatever. And he would chastise me some, some severe. I used to hate it, but it was not until years later that I saw if it wasn't for what God used him for, I don't think I would be here today. Mm. What God was doing with him was breaking me off from the uh, the fatherlessness kind of rebellion in a sense. I'm going to do it my way, my time table. And God used that. And then the guy after him, God used um, Pastor Dave Bailey, Grand Rapids, white guy. Um, up until I met him, I'm preaching by this time now. Um, he taught me the spiritual disciplines um, that I needed. And the most important one that he taught me uh, was the, I remember when I first preached, he said, preaching is a gift. You don't, can't teach that. He said, but, you know, I was a kind of the self, just do it, Nike slogan, gospel, go and try harder. And so God used him to help me grow in the gospel, to help me understand what do we mean when we say the gospel? Mm. And I see that now in my in my ministry. You know, a lot of people don't know that. Even when we do interviews at our church, when people join our church, we say explain the gospel. And what we hear is, well, I'm trying to be, if you're going to keep trying, you might, as well, <laughs> you might as well go jump into the Pacific Ocean and have Billy write a book about you trying to swim to the other side. Because <laughs> that's, about, that's about as far as you're going to get. <laughs> right, right. And he drilled that into me. And he um, I, he kept, they wanted me to plant a church out of his big church and I didn't want to do it. And they kept coming back to me and said, no, you don't, we want you to plant this church. But I had the fear and I had gotten used to just being his coattail. So I, he'd do all the heavy lifting. I could just kind of keep my weekends to myself. And, you know, preaching every Sunday is, is, is a huge taxing, you know, oh, yeah. discipline. So make a long story short, uh, I finally said yes, and then I regretted it because every Sunday I got to preach. And so I would text him the day before and say, I can't do it. I'm not up to it. I feel just, I feel ill qualified for it. And he was like, Nope, I know what you're doing. Believe the gospel. He would say, Preach the gospel. <laughs> and I said, I do believe the gospel. He said, No, you don't. You thinking God's going to bless you based on your prayer? Whatever else you got in your mind, that's mm. what I do. So you don't you don't believe the gospel. You think you do. You think you believe it, but you don't believe it because you keep trying. Especially if I had to serve communion that Sunday, that, that Sunday, it would be the worst because now I gotta be the one to institute it. And I'm like, I haven't prayed. Me and Sandra got in an argument, <laughs> and it, it was like, and he changed my life. And it was through that church plant, I tell people, and that was like maybe 
three years before I came here, um, it's what I really would say from head to heart, I um, had what we finally called, it's Tim Keller, who's Lord rest in peace, Dr. Mm -hmm. Keller, finally understood that it was never me mm. striving. It's never me trying. It was me believing the story, the greatest story ever told. Yeah. God become a man, dying. And and man, it changed me. And then from that time on, I could hardly ever do a sermon without God. Yeah. Because I realized Jesus was using broken, fragile, anemic human beings, knowing that we were not gonna always walk around. And, and it just it just took over me. And I just like even now, and I got these young preachers around me now, they when they gotta preach and stuff, they just like trying to get out of it because it's like they they think God wants their perfection. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And now Pastor Day laughing at him, reading the gospel, they trying to get out of it. So it was Pastor Day, and then um, um, then guys from afar, of course Piper, um, 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 Alistair Beck, and then um, guys and another guy, um, black guy who's dead now. In his early years, when I was in the charismatic circles, his ministry probably by far had the hugest, biggest impact on me. And what, God is doing now was Dr. Miles Monroe. Um, and you know, he talked about just the idea of purpose and just listening to that early on. This is even before Rick um Rick Warren had wrote his book, Purpose Driven right. Mind. Miles was talking about that stuff. And and just coming from the Bahamas like he did, and and just just me just investing into that. Um um, especially his early years, he kind of went off the back end, but the, the three to 10 years, it literally, uh, I give Miles a lot of credit uh, for how and what he spoke, what he preached, because he would always write a last chapter to the third world people. And, and though I consider myself being from Selma, Sardis, I was from a third world mentality. So my mind, and how I saw myself was very um, unbiblical. And Mao's teachings helped me to be able to be where I'm at now and walk in these spaces. Sometimes, um, Pastor Lynn, I'm the only black in the room. And Billy, you tell you, I'm here in Birmingham and I'm in the room with all these Presbyterians, PhDs. I was like, man, how in the world I get here? And and I, and all the Selma and Sardis wants to come out sometimes, and then God's uh, uh no 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 no, <laughs> and I uh, I hear Miles, and it's no, for such a time as this, I've been born and called into this space, and believe the gospel and walk in it, and so those are the guys that I would give credit to for my life. Uh, here's what I want to do is is Billy when we when we were talking about having this, um. And uh, you talked about an issue that I think sits in the heart of Alton, and that's fatherlessness um, mm. and the impact of fatherlessness. Um, I'm going to I'm going to pause for a second. If I'm intruding into your life, forgive me, Billy. I know that uh, that when you were just a teenager, your father 
passed and uh, you understand the loss of a father in a unique way. Um, and everything that I know about your dad is that he was a great human being. He was a great man mm -hmm. who, who loved you and your siblings uh, very, very much. Um, but I think, and if, if I'm mistaken, you can tell me I'm all, I'm all wet, uh, do it all fair though. Um, uh, is I think that part of why, uh, the fatherlessness, um, part of Alton's story is, uh, impacting to you is because you know, both, mm. you know, both fathering and fatherlessness. Uh, and you know that at one point in time, your ship changed. Uh, and it was right. his, it was his investment in you that allowed you to navigate, but it was also that loss that gave you the sense of I know what that means. Am I accurate in that? A hundred percent. Yeah, I I, th I think that um, I do understand the feeling of not having an earthly father or the loss of an earthly father. Uh, the perspectives are a little bit different, I think, or maybe a lot different. Uh, whereas I believe Alton was always in search of a father to love him. Um, I, at a certain point in my life, uh, felt the need to replace that mm. love that I did feel. Uh, because as, as you mentioned, uh, you know, and, and I, and I love to say about him, it's my, my father was, was the single greatest human being outside of Jesus Christ to walk the earth. He was, involved and engaged and uh, generous and just a perfect example of what an earthly father should be and mm -hmm. to lose that uh i think the the morning that i went through was a uh pretty mm -hmm. temporary pretty uh, as far as uh, as far as timing goes was a uh, a, a temporary or or small feeling of loss and um because I also knew the Lord at the time my father passed. And so, so there is a, there's a mourning that happens right. uh, when you lose someone here. But uh, I do think that my life since then, I mean, my gosh, it's been 35 years. So the past 35 years have, have been a constant searching for, and oh yeah, oh yeah, I have that, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to feeling, uh, I have felt great loss. Mm. I don't know that I've ever felt lost. Hmm. Does that make sense? Um, Total sense. And I think Total that, sense. I think that I can relate to Alton's feeling of loss and grieving the loss of or the lack of a father. I don't know that I have a uh, context for the depth of his grief right. and not understanding um, a relationship with his he heavenly father throughout yeah. su such a long time throughout his life. Yeah. Uh, so similarities but but some vast differences there as well you're not wrong uh but that's, that's not what's complete been so neat. yeah it's been neat and encouraging to to learn his story and understand yeah. where we are alike and where we differ and i'm grateful for both absolutely absolutely uh out you mentioned uh fatherlessness about five or six times and it's uh usually when something comes up like that because that's that's not a word we use in passing uh, that's a mission word. That's a passion word. And my hunch is, and you can clarify this, that uh, that's a big part of your, your not just your story, but your mission. Can you talk to uh, our listeners 
about the importance of a father, about the importance of uh, the impact of fatherlessness. And what is it you specifically are being called to do to address that? Yeah. Um, and you said you had only 40 minutes. I gave you a, a two hour question. <laughs> yeah, that's a, um, it's going to be short. Uh, most definitely is one of the assignments that I speak into that I believe the, Jesus himself has impressed upon my heart. Um, it's one has come directly out of my life. And the evidence is overwhelming um, what the impact of, of earthly fathers have on their children, girls and boys. Um, the research is undeniable, even for those who try to disagree with it. And we're seeing that playing out in America across all of our countries, both rural and suburban, inner city. We're seeing that. And um, about two summers ago, I, I I, I was preaching on Father's Day and I was preparing and I just remember, I said, why is the, the social pathologies are so directly connected to when fathers are not in the home mm -hmm. with their children? I said, well, why is that? I mean, why is that one? I mean, like, can it just be something else, you know? lack of mothers or whatever. And, it's, and all the, even the sociologists, people who study this, they really don't know why. They just can tell you this is what we see. Those right. who go to prison, those who die, homelessness, those who get pregnant, those who commit suicide. And I think it points to a greater fatherlessness. Yeah. Which is to, to be in a world of the size that we live in with 8 billion people and to not be known or to be known by the one that created them yeah. is the greatest um, fatherlessness that a human heart can experience. And I think what God is trying to show in that parallel, when we don't have our earthly fathers, it has overwhelming pathologies that people can't seem to fix. And so the hope is that that I tell, but when we are connected, because I my I never made in in the, in a good sense reconciliation with my earthly dad. So if if it's all about me being connected to an earthly dad, then I would stay in a state of hopelessness because my dad is gone, and those talks and head rubs or whatever they never happen. Right. And, and and so what do I do now? Where, where do I find my hope? And, and so, and now I point to the reality of my true father mm. who does rub my head, who does encourage me, who always speaks good of me. And that's where I try to point young men and young women to now because many of them don't even know who their fathers are and some of their fathers are dead, as Billy talked about, and they never had even a good relationship. So it's it's a mixed bag all the way around. And so that's, yeah, that's part of the mission of Urban Hope and Alton Hardy is to point people to the true father mm. that I finally found and my life changed. 
Yeah. Can I jump in real quick? Um, yeah, I'm gonna, please. I'm going to I'm going to ask a selfish question because I've not written this part of the book yet. And I need you to say it again. <laughs> but I do think it's a good I think it's a good a good segue. Um, you never reconciled with your father uh, from the perspective of um, true understanding, true understanding of one another. You have told me, though, about a conversation you had with him mm-hmm. at your mother's funeral. Mm-hmm. And this was uh, a decade ago. Yes. Uh, yeah. About 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. And you had this tug and this pull and this this uh, need, not just a want, but a need to understand. Yes. Right. To understand him, to understand why he treated your mother the way that he treated her, mm-hmm. why he made some of the really poor decisions that he made in yeah. life, why he was angry. Um, and you, uh, you said you weren't going to cry, but you probably will. Um, <laughs> That conversation and your understanding of his answer, you couldn't have understood that answer without without a, a relationship with Jesus, I don't think. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have meant, meant as much to you. But talk to me about that conversation. You, know, don't, you don't have to get too deep into the circumstances yeah. around it, but you found yourself on a bench overlooking a lake at your mother's funeral, and you had an opportunity to ask your father yeah. why he was the way that he was. Yeah. <clears throat> To the listeners, yes, um, I'm in ministry, I'm in Grand Rapids, I'm preaching, and and I think God really was setting this thing up with my dad. And so I, I'm starting, and I got these race conversations going around too, so that was part of it. And so, and people were like, well, you're from Selma. So they were just totally enamored with Selma. And so me being born there, I just couldn't get away from it. And so, well, that got me to thinking, well, I'm having these racial conversations all the time. Let me try to understand my dad, my mom. You know, they were born in the 1930s. And so and so my mom um, dies. And so I go, my dad is still living. So I go to Buffalo and 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 I have my first laptop. I never I still haven't got rid of it because I wanted to ask my dad some questions. And over to set the background, I had never had a, uh, what's the word, just a sit-down, one-on-one conversation with my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, why I waited so long, I don't know. It was it was like, I think I had done what a lot of us do with in fatherless condition. I had learned, um, I had learned to, I think it's probably just a lot of pain there and I had been suppressing it. And I just um just didn't know if I, I don't know what I don't know what I thought about my dad. And I had a lot of emotions around him. So I interview him and and I mean Christ and and he just tells me these stories of his own life in Sardis. And for the listeners, you just this is just what this is where history, people understanding their time slot when they're born. And he was just born in a different time than I was. He's in the deep South. He's in, he's, you know, he's just, I mean, he's beaten down by the systems if you want to call it of his day. He's sharecropping. He doesn't even know he's sharecropping because he doesn't have a terminology for it. Mm. He calls it work, but 
and his family, his mom and dad has abandoned him. And, and there's just a lot of pain in my dad's own life. He can't really, he's got a second grade education. He's, he's broken down. He's in a walker. He's 77 and he's on his last leg. And I mean, and he's just a life of just pain and sorrow, regret. His kids hate some, and he's beat my mom a lot. And so I asked him, dad, what make you do it? He really didn't have an answer for that as much. Um, he didn't have an answer for as much. He's it's part of the time and and he made something, you know, something you just gotta understand. It was, I don't know, I have read stories about trying to make himself feel like a man. I think that was some of that playing itself out because how he was probably being treated in the in the overall culture. And I don't I don't know how to make reconcile that sometimes. But what he did say was this is what Billy is talking about, that really, if it wasn't for Jesus and me, which is part of my story as well. Um, and my dad is not educated. So he just, he's, he's not, his vocabulary is probably third grade at best, if that, if not, not that much. But he's telling me these stories and I'm, and I'm asking him questions and I'm trying to get out of him because I know he's not going to live long. So I'm trying to get as much as I can he tells me these heartbreaking stories of his own life and sharecropper working, trying to take care of all these children when he got with my mom. And he tells a story that he would bring in his harvest. He didn't use that word. He said, he'll bring my work in. And the guy that was overseeing the, if you want to call it the plantation, say, hey, I ain't got no money for you. Call him the N word. There's some rotten apples and oranges over there. You can take that and go feed your family. And like I said, now I don't know my dad like some of my other brothers knew him. They grew up with him. By the time I came along, my mom had already moved on from him. So I don't have a lot of recollection of him being in the house. But what I do remember this day, in this hot summer day in July, as my dad was in the walker and I'm sitting there with my laptop looking over the Lake Huron in Buffalo, he's, he's crying. These tears are running out of his face. And you got to understand my dad, he grew up hard, digging ditches for little country churches for funerals with his own, with a shovel, not with a backhoe, but with a real shovel. That's what he did most of, until he died. Uh, he couldn't do it no more. He's crying. He's weeping. And he says, son, I lost hope. Mm. Oh, my goodness. So I'm in the midst of I'm in this church, all this race conversation. And he tells me he lost hope. Um, Pastor Litter, I hit our man, I, I fell on the ground. I started screaming, <laughs> crying out to Jesus, you gotta do something. And that's part of I like to talk about my dad now. And he wasn't there, but um Part of what I say to people, I mean, there is, I'm in Birmingham now, so I'm, I'm going off script, but part of this, there's a lot of overlap. Uh, my dad wasn't a victimologist guy. He wasn't trying to tell me that to get, to get off. But he told me a real story that had a huge impact on him mm -hmm. to where it brought up tears. He said, son, I lost hope. Wow. I couldn't take care of my family. 
and he said, I just gave up. And he, and then, because I know this story is true because my older brother said my dad was a pretty good guy, but something happened. And and he said he gave up and he started drinking. And that's when he started doing moonshine, mm. trying to provide for his family. And you know, Selma, sorry, it was a different time in my daddy's days. It was, it was, and Jim Crow was really real. You know, and so being back here in Pasadena and Birmingham, um, I get to tell these stories sometimes because I think some people, I said, there is a healing, a reconciliation, but sometimes it's just sitting with, um, this just feeds in the urban hope in the, in the sense of what God is doing. Man, there were some missed opportunities that the church could have done things better in, in that day and hour. Those walls were really erect. And that's why the race thing bothers me so because I don't want to cry. You can't be the church. You gotta, you gotta extend being what Jesus told us to be because when we don't, steps up cycles of woundedness and poverty. And my dad was just trying to take care of his family. And he's like, I couldn't provide. I couldn't, where am I going? I'm in, the, I'm in Sardis in 1940-50, and I can't provide with my family. And it's hard line. It's just, it's, and, and my dad's sitting in this walker. He's just like, I lost hope. I, I, I stopped fighting. I gave up, and and that really um, um, that really touched me, and it, and, uh, and it's still with me to the day. Um, and um, that's part of my story. It's connected to my dad, and I and, and I told him for me, I just look. I saw my dad differently from that time on. I I was probably the only one at the funeral other than my sister. I wept. Um, I, had, I came to a better understanding of his life that I didn't know before. Right. And I didn't make excuses for what he did to my mom, but it really did help me understand that um, how he was processing life as he was dying was in a state of hopelessness. He said, I lost. I said, I can stop. Yeah. And he was sitting there, I'll never forget it. He was in that walker. He says, I lost hope. I couldn't provide. And, and so that's what it what it what that, that story told me was, you know, that it's a pretty good excuse for the inexcusable. How he yeah. how he treated Alton's mom and how he treated his family and how he uh lived his life for a certain amount of time for a pretty good part of his life. Um having no hope and not even a perception or perceived control of your day yeah. or your life and having no hope could probably cause just about anybody to lash out and yeah. search for that, search for that control, even with clenched fists sometimes. Right. And, and to, this is the only place that I can exert power. This is the only, only place that I can, I can uh, feel like a quote unquote man. Uh, and that story is just really stuck with me and is interesting as you know, without the hope of Jesus, the hope of Christ, uh, where would we be, right? Where would, where would Alton be? Where would, uh, where would these hundreds of thousands of people who have benefited from Alton's stories and his ministry be? And, and that's, you know, it, it, it's, it's generational for sure. But, but as we're telling Alton's story, that particular story yeah. 
is really, really powerful and uh, and plays into who who Alton has become. Even I mean, even over the past decade, uh, I think just it's a continual understanding of who we are in Christ and where hope really comes from. You know, yeah. to, to me, and that's oof, that's a lot. <laughs> it's uh, hope, heavy. Hope comes. Hope is uh, springs out of people doing the right thing for the right reason. And uh, there's a history of the church and race where the wrong thing was done for the wrong reason, or times when the right thing was done for the wrong reason, and neither one of those bring hope. Hope comes yeah. when, when people of God, regardless of their ethnicity, step forward and do the right thing for all people, uh, or all the people that they're in relationship with and beyond because that inspires that boy i am not in this thing alone and i'm not in this thing with people who have no power to move me forward i'm not in this thing with the inability to break a cycle uh you know and when you when you talk out and i i think um uh your story is about breaking the cycles uh, and Billy's story is about maintaining a cycle. Um, those two things um, both come uh, and bring hope. You know, uh, Billy's about maintaining a cycle of a dad who's present. Uh, and so when I wanted to talk to him the other day, he says, I can't talk right now. Uh, I'm taking my kid to a wrestling camp. Uh, it's been a great weekend because I got to, I got to watch my daughter graduate. Um you know, we had a few weeks ago as my son was home uh, from college and that's a big deal. And <clears throat> Billy's perpetuating a cycle of hope. You're breaking a cycle of hopelessness so that a new cycle can come in. And I think that that springs out of the soil of people doing the right thing for the right reasons. And that's what the gospel is about. It's about us being made right with God and, uh, uh, because of Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. So as you as you um, live this out, um, Alton, with working in the lives of young people, of all people, I imagine that uh, there's just as many uh, grown men who are 55 years old going, I didn't break the cycle. Um, would, you, would you extend... Uh, a few sentences of hope to the person listening right now going, um, I didn't break the cycle and I needed to, I just lost hope. Uh, can you, would you be able to whisper some hope to them um, or say something that you go, I mean, this is what I found. Cause you went from, you went from uh, a shotgun house to a pastor speaking, breathing and living hope. Someone else can do that too. Would you say something to them? Yes. And for those of you listening to my sound of my voice, no, you can't see me, um, see my eyes, see my facial expressions. But I, I know um, the entanglement of fatherlessness, wounds, um, and so I know that, and I, I empathize with you male nor, or female, I understand that. But um, this, this, this God, this Jesus, son of God, um, that's a true story. 
And it's a story that I didn't always understand nor believe, maybe the way that I needed to believe at the time. And I'm here to tell you, he is the one that has created you. And he sees you, he knows you. And all of your days, as Psalms 139 says, before one of them came to be, he knew them and wrote them in a book. Mm -hmm. I don't understand all of that. Can't can't give you any more than that. But here's what I do know. In that book, he wrote good days and bad days. And I've learned to grow as I've gotten older that God knew that I was going to be fatherless, but he also knew one day that I was going to come to know and trust him and be where I am today. And I'm here to tell you, if you would just, um, in, the, in, the, just in the quietness of your heart, so Lord, you wrote my days, you created me, and as you hear in my story about what God has done and I love about God, what he's done for me, he'll do for you and even much more. And trust that story. Ask him to come heal your heart. One thing I say to all people who've had issues with their natural dads or earthly dads, I say this, and I've seen grown men cry a lot. Um, uh, that day for me, meeting my dad in Buffalo was for me. I needed to be reconciled to him. And that was my way of God, him and I being reconciled. Mm -hmm. And I say to you, whether you have anger or hurt or just pain or sorrow, whatever it may be, just ask Jesus, Lord, take this out of me. Help me right now to forgive, let go, um, or whatever it may be. And just let the tears come. Let, let the tears be real. Don't try to, don't try to say, no, I don't care about him. I don't care about it. he doesn't mean anything to me. He was never there. Just let that the reality of what that is be what it is. And then ask God to heal your heart. And then ask God to come in and begin to fill you up with his spirit and begin to walk with you as he is your true father. And one of the prayers that I prayed, because I didn't know how to do anything when I had my own children. I would be in lots of moments where I just had never been there before. I didn't know what to do as a dad. And I would say, Father, please help me. Show me what words to say. Mm. Show me how to love my kids. And I would just be very humble about it. I didn't, I stopped trying to fake it. I just said, I don't know. I've never been here. And I would hear God say, do this, do that. And that's why the guys had become so real to me because I just didn't try to, and I read a lot of books as well, just on fathering and stuff like that. And so if you just do these little things, you'll see God will break cycles. He will become real to you in your life. And I pray that he will lead you to what he's called you to be and to do in your lifetime. Pray that in Jesus' name. Man, I love that. Thank you. I so appreciate that. I want to respect both of your time. Uh, I so appreciate the investment that you have made to come and sit with me um, through Zoom, uh, through conversations. Um, I was preaching at a church a few years ago, and uh, I was standing in front, and this phrase came out of my mouth, and I just went, wow, uh, that, that, that God is the father I needed, and I'm the child he wanted. And uh, there's something true about that statement that I think anybody 
And anybody who's listening can grab a hold of this truth that that God wants you. There are no unwanted children um, because the Father in heaven has the capacity to want us badly, to want us in every situation and circumstance. And and I think of uh, Alton. I think of your dad, and that uh, even as a grown man at seventy-seven years old, broken down with tears in his eyes. Uh, he is a child that the father wants, even at that stage, uh, that you carry that message. Um, and whether we had it on earth or not, uh, through our earthly fathers, uh, there's a part of us that we all know something needs to happen from a dad to a kid. And so uh, I would say to uh, anyone listening, um, check out uh, check out. Uh, uh, small stories with Billy Ivy. Check out uh, Alton's story. Tell us the name of your church again, brother. Urban Hope Community Church, Fairfield, Alabama. Okay, and then uh, we'll put any other links that you guys have for any other ministries. Your wife runs a nonprofit for youth and such, and uh, we'll put all those in the show notes. Um, but guys, I just want to say thank you again. I so appreciate you, and uh, Billy, I appreciate you and just your willingness to uh step in and do something that is so meaningful, uh, both to the people whose story you're telling and to those who get to hear it. And, and Alton, keep on, uh, keep on, uh, uh, doing what you're doing. Uh, one of these days I'll come over to your church and, uh, I'd love to come on down and, and, uh, sure. if you don't make people wear robes, I'll even preach. Uh, no, <laughs> so, no we're, we're robes. <laughs> well, if, if I can we're wear a Carhartt cool. t-shirt, it's about all yes, I got. So, um, but I so thank you, gentlemen. Um, anything else you guys want to say before you get out of here? Billy, man, I would just thank you. I, I thank you for what you're doing, your ministry. And, and, uh, and, uh, there's a lot of, I, I do think the three of us need to need to spend some time together, uh, offline off yeah. air, uh, but together, because there, I think there's a lot more stories to be told, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just grateful for your heart and, and for your ministry and what you're doing and for, letting us come in and talk to you. Uh, I so appreciate that. So appreciate that. Hey, let me pray us out of here and uh, we'll, uh, we'll connect again soon. I hope father, you are good. Um, we call you father. And that is a sweet, refreshing sound uh, from our mouth and our lips. Uh, Cause we know what that means. We know how far you had to go to make us your children. We know that, by saying father, that means the Holy spirit is active in our hearts because that's how we cry out the father. Uh, God, we are so grateful. Um, I pray that you would further, uh, the ministry of both of these men, uh, yes. whether it is the ministry of speaking to men who need fathers, preaching in churches, standing in the gap where the gospel needs to be the answer to racial reconciliation and not a political construct. God, I pray yes. that uh, you would give Elton every strength, every word, every thought. And, and Lord, as Billy steps into a ministry that is really telling your stories, it's an Acts 29 ministry, the story that is still being told by God today. Um, I pray that, God, you would uh, continue not only to help him tell those stories, but bring them to the right people uh, who would... Um, whose stories need to be told. Uh, God, we thank you in all of this. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. So, well, folks, that is a wrap for uh, Say Yes and Become. And uh, we are going to be out of here.